You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Curtain up, theater people, and welcome to your program is your ticket. My name is Sean Chandler, and I'll be your host. Your program is your ticket is a discussion of smaller theater works and the people and organizations that make it happen. As many of you know, your program is your ticket is a helpful system where your program is literally your ticket to get into the theater in smaller, more intimate productions. It's these works we like to highlight, and it's our goal on this show to feature as many of these productions as possible while still discussing the biggies. Today's show is the continuation of a new series called Act Two Places. I'm bringing on a series of guests to discuss how COVID-19 affected them and their organizations. As you all know, we've been hit hard with a complete, hopefully temporary, change of lifestyle and business systems during this pandemic, and theater definitely wasn't spared. In fact, theater has undergone one of its biggest shifts, if not the biggest shift, in the history of modern theater. This series gives theater folks an opportunity to discuss the effects of this shift on them and their organizations. My guest on today's show is award-winning, critically acclaimed theater set designer Adam Koch. This Carnegie Mellon University graduate has designed dazzling sets for a multitude of productions. I brought Adam on the show to discuss his incredible body of work, how COVID-19 has affected his art and business, and the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic on the set design community overall. Now, Adam was interviewed at a different time to accommodate schedules, so you may hear differences in audio here and there. Not that that takes anything away from his awesome interview. I'm just letting you know up front, just in case things start to sound a little different between what you're hearing right now and the interview itself. So, let's bring him on. Hi, Adam, and welcome to your program, Is Your Ticket. Hey, thank you. Thank you for letting me be here. It's my pleasure. Um, I have to tell our audience how I came about to know who you were uh, because you didn't know who I was at the time, but you didn't realize that I was already a huge fan because um, there is a production (laughs) uh, that Adam has done uh, where he's designed the set for the musical Titanic. Now, I've seen Titanic in uh, Arlington, Virginia, with the Signature Theater, which is not to be confused with the Signature Theater in New York. It's its, its own thing, and um, it's it really is a delightful musical. But Adam, like you, took it to a whole other level because the set like sunk into like it was an outdoors. It was on the water. That's right, on the water, and it just like literally sunk into. Oh my gosh! I saw a video of it. I was I had to do my own show here. I was in a, a festival with my play running, and I 
but otherwise, I go to Atlanta all the time. Um, so, um, I, kudos to you. Well, thank you. I mean, we, we, we can talk about that. Everyone, everyone loves to talk about that show. And a lot of people did travel from all over the world to come see that. I mean, once it got going, it got, it got a lot of good press and that was a very exciting thing to be a part of for sure. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, it was really, really neat. And, uh, again, well, I you missed it. I, you know, <laughs> I know oh, my stupid play that I had to produce yeah. here. <laughs> when, it's crazy. Cause I go, uh, I fly into Atlanta all the time. My sister lives in Alabama and I have to transfer planes there because nobody flies directly to Mobile, Alabama, which is by the way, something I heard at the Delta desk. So <laughs> that doesn't come from me. If anybody has an issue with it. Um, let's start by having you tell our listeners about your background. What inspired you to go into the art of set design and, and when did that happen? When did that inspiration strike? Well, look, I'm from the Midwest and as a dramatist, I can't help but think about my own story in terms of story. And so my, you know, my personal life story kind of fits under the, the category of, you know, young kid from Ohio who gets a taste of theater and, you know, and stops at nothing to uh and gives it all up to go to the big city to kind of pursue that dream it's a you know it's a it's a it's a good story you know um one that is told in many ways and over the years but um luckily i grew up in ohio dayton ohio which had a lot of arts uh surprisingly if you look closely a lot of like cultural institution and arts organizations and i was born to two parents who you know without knowing it were going to were kind of set up perfectly to turn me into a little set designer. They were both teachers. My mom um, taught and is taught art and is herself a painter, has sold lots of paintings over the years. And my dad taught um, mechanical design, drafting, industrial design, and like graphic design, also mm-hmm. talented in all those areas as well. And so without knowing it, they just, you know, and as teachers, you know, you always bring home extra paper and extra tools and this and that. And so as a kid, I couldn't appreciate this fully, but our house is full of art supplies and things you'd need to, you know, if I could, if I needed to make something, a little something, we just had, had all the stuff everywhere. So, um, it was easy to kind of get into the hang of, or into the habit of like making things and being able to create anything I wanted, little dioramas and all that kind of stuff. Um, they're also just very well-rounded people to begin with. And so they, very, I think intentionally kind of exposed me to all different things in a very, um, democratic way. It's like, well, we'll expose him to different things and let him choose his own way. And so I, I really appreciate that again, in hindsight, when you're a kid, you think your parents are like out to trap you in the house. But now right. I, I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, they did everything right. Um, they, you know, even one summer signed me up for a soccer camp and I came home the first day and was like, don't you ever sign me up for something like that again. <laughs> so it's like, all right. So that was off the list. I wasn't going to become an athlete. Um, and as again, and I didn't have any brothers and sisters. And so has been, has been well documented in different ways. Like the kind of magic of the only child is that they have a lot of time to become who they're going to be all by themselves. And so I had a lot of time to do whatever I wanted. And, you know, if you don't have older siblings, there's no pattern for how to be a kid. And so do other kids, you know, make puppet theaters all day in the basement? I don't know, but that's what I did. And so I didn't have any, any really comparison in a good way. Um, I did want to say, Oh, tell me. I did want to say that um, just to your point with, with Ohio, Ohio was very, very artistic. I've interviewed quite a few people in Ohio um, uh, in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. And uh, and, and that was actually one of the stops of the, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this called the Broadway princess party. 
um, where three or four of the original Disney princesses take this show to various locations. It's like Laura Osnes. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Uh, 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 who's the young lady? Um, the young lady from uh, Anastasia, Christy Altomare. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've interviewed quite a few people from uh, um, Ohio, and they have wonderful arts programs there. Yeah. I mean, I again, just like that. It really is that um, it turns out to always be the, you know, you get off the bus with your suitcase and you look up the skyscrapers and something about, it must be just be the contrast of where you come from and like the difference between where you are and where you want to get to that just supercharges people to go into the arts from the Midwest or something. But it's a, it's still a mystery. If I had some, you know, well, nowadays there's lots of time, but I'd love to do some research <laughs> program on like, why do people from the Midwest like gravitate towards New York and Hollywood? It's just, it's kind of crazy. Because you so think they'd be farmers, but you know they love they want to be stars. I don't know why it is. <laughs> um, is. So is that what you did? Did you come out here and you got out of a vehicle and were like like a train or? A well, bus? That, the thing again, I'm a dramatist, so that's how in my mind that is how it was. That's like the myth, the mythology of it. I mean, it's I got off a plane, probably not a train or a bus, but um, it, it, it definitely feels like that. Um, but um, I mean, I definitely I can tell you that the. The turning point, I mean, a major turning point later on as, you know, as a junior high or high schooler was after years of kind of stepping up. And once I realized that set design was a thing that you could be involved with, I think I think I stepped up and kind of took over the, my little, my high school didn't have a big theater program, but I kind of saw a need for, I mean, I think I grew up seeing the, as a junior high, I would, junior high kid, I would see the high school shows and be like, oh my gosh, these sets could be so much better. And, you know, as they say, an artist feels a need and fills it. And so I stepped up and said, I think I could, you know, probably very timidly went to the teacher and said, I think I could design a little set for this. And then one year it became bigger and bigger and bigger until I was in high school and really designing quite elaborate sets, um, probably more so than they needed to be because, you know, little kids have something to prove. And so these pretty elaborate sets for the high school. And I, and just by luck of the draw and this is where you just can't control this kind of thing our superintendent of our of our school system was childhood friends with then the um the associate head of of the associate head of the Carnegie Mellon School of Drama and she got on the phone with him behind the scenes like you got to come see these shows because they're probably something in there's something to see and so at some point i remember i was in i think it was the our sophomore my sophomore year we're doing the music man and i had gone probably way overboard with a set it was all sepia toned which i thought worked it turns out that does not work but i was so proud of it and um richard block from carnegie mellon came to see it he fell asleep but god bless him and but afterwards i took him on a tour introduced him to my parents and you know they had a little moment where it's like if adam's interested in this like this is the place to go and of course he's like scouting for his own purposes but um at the time i uh you know early on in high school you don't know i just i didn't know that that was I didn't know that was like a college uh, level thing you could study. I thought it was like acting or nothing because, you know, the technical side of theater is still kind of a mystery. Like where does all that come from? But it yeah. turns out you can study it. And he kind of introduced me to that. And the next two years was kind of like feigning, applying to all these other colleges. But my heart was already set on Carnegie Mellon. And, you know, you got to have your options. But I knew I, I kind of wanted to go there based on his his interest. Not a bad school to go Not to. Not a bad school, as it turns out, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your your favorite set that you designed in high school and why it was your favorite. Well, 
Because we know it's not the music man. <laughs> well, the thing is, as as people have learned throughout the years, I mean, all sepia set, it's just brown. And now as an adult, I can't stand brown. I like <laughs> very colorful sets. Um, probably, uh, I think my senior year, we did, and this thing is the list of the shows that I'm about, that I would could say right now is very few, but we did Bye Bye Birdie. Mm. And of course, on one hand, is it a snooze? It's like, well, not necessarily. It can be, you know, thought of, you know, it can be rethought and, um, done inventively. And so I, th- I was very proud of that because a, we, we also had a small stage. And so, and as a young person, you think that you're going to be so clever by devising this maybe like overly unit set. And again, as an adult, I don't really prescribe to that anymore because what, you know, the audience wants changes and flavor, different flavors to come and go. If it's just the same, if it's literally the same the whole time, it's actually kind of boring, I think. But sure. at the time I thought it was very inventive by conceiving this like all in one set for Bye Bye Birdie, whether, you know, now, whether it's good or bad, I don't know. But at the time I was really proud of it. And actually it kind of had a interesting, like for the telephone hour, and now I'm remembering it had like a big billboard that said Sweet Apple and like laughing, all these little windows would open and the kids would be like on on phones, like in the billboard or something, you know, again, in that way that we, it's a myth that like kids are more creative than adults, but in that there is a certain kind of fearlessness that when you're young, you're like, oh, we could do this and this and this. And nowadays I'm like overthinking things and, you know, you've got to think deeply about it because there's so much on the line. But as a kid, you know, it's just... uh it was fun just to dream and it could happen. And, you know, there's no one to say otherwise. <laughs> right. You're dealing with what, maybe two, $300 budget for yeah, exactly. I mean, it's all to thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, but the magic, that's the beautiful thing about theater, whether it's like a puppet show you're watching as a kid or your high school show, it's like, it's like Broadway in your mind because literally you're smaller and everything's bigger by just perspective wise. And so it's just, it's funny how, what a, how, what a big, beautiful impact, even small thing. You know, you look back and it's like, oh God, that was nothing. But when, when you're in it, you're like, gosh, this, everything's on the line and it's so important. And it's just fun to kind of feel that young grandeur about things, I guess. Absolutely. What was your first Broadway show? The first show that I saw? Right, that you saw. Um, well, again, I, I'm sure is what is now the Broadway, what is it called? Like the what's the big Broadway circuit that makes all the tours? I bet I saw. I know I saw Phantom of a tour of Phantom in Columbus because I sure. and I also saw um in Dayton a tour of Les Mis at the time. And of course, you know you want to like blow a kid's mind. It's like go to take them to see that when they're ten. It's like wow, what is this? Like I've been in this building before, and now suddenly you go in and it's you know. 1860s Paris and there's this huge spinning stage and the barricades and all. I mean, it's a famous design, obviously, and a very, a very meaningful one. And, um, you know, it really took my breath away in a way. Wow. Um, I think that Les Mis, the enjoyment of Les Mis has a lot to do with the set. Uh, the first time, um, my husband David and I saw it, we were a lot younger and we didn't have a lot of money and we got tickets and it was like, total nosebleed in at the orange County performing arts center. And we were way high. So really all I remember were like the big numbers, you know, uh, on my own and uh, one day more, all of that stuff. And I was like, "Ah, I'm not really connecting to this, but then we saw it in London and we had more money and we were like three rows back. We took his parents to London and I was like, 
has it always been this good? This is amazing. But it, it, I mean, the set of that show is incredible and not well, just the turntable and, and everything. Well, that's, this is one of those shows that in a weird way, it gets uh, a lot of those big eighties extravaganzas. I, even that is kind of already un, underselling them. We call them extravaganzas, but if you actually look at it, it's actually very simple. Now look, the mechanics that are making those big thing, those big sweeping changes happen is are complex, but mm-hmm. what's on stage, it's never that much. It's usually in darkness. I mean, it's essentially in a smoky void and there's just kind of one thing or two things peeking out and a person in the spotlight, but it, same thing with Phantom I mean, the original Phantom by Maria Bjornsson. It's actually a very simple, uh, you know, it's kind of one big element per scene. It's not as, you know, it's not as overly wrought as we like think it is in our mind. If you go back and look, it's like very simple and just about the story and the f- f- simple focus and, you know, and, you know, again, complicated things happening behind the scenes, but that's not the point. Right, right, absolutely, and and those complicated things I think are sometimes taken for granted by people, and and maybe maybe they should be as a you're not supposed to think about that, yeah, right, exactly. I mean, I'll go see shows multiple times, including Phantom out here, um, which has a Thursday matinee, which is great. But I'll go see it just to see if I can see something different, or if I can figure out one of the one of the stage tricks that they're doing. Well, wait, don't let me forget. I would also like to do some uh, ongoing adult studies research program on seeing things from the balcony, seeing things up close. I, there are, there are, there are um, exceptions, but generally I see something from the back of the theater. I'm like, oh, I'm not really connecting to this. Why? Cause I mean, you're a thousand feet away. When right. you see something in the front row, you're like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Because you know, it, you can't help but be, you're closer. It's in your face. I, so I do think when people give like bad reviews or something to something, it's like, wherever you're sitting, first of all. Mm-hmm. And then to your point about seeing something different, I mean, just as a set designer or, you know, for people who are in theater, the, what, an always kind of magical moments when you're like sitting way off to the left or right of a show, especially for a Broadway show and backstage, you see things like the light towers going up and down and things shifting. You're like, God, like there is, is nonstop action off stage. Cause you know, a lot of these Broadway theaters are not that big. And so you can always just get a little hint of the things that are the mega things that are moving, you know, in the wings while there's like, you know, while things are static on stage, there's always something going on off stage. Uh, one of my big goals and dreams uh, ever, and it probably won't ever happen for insurance purposes, is to be able to like go backstage at, at a show like Wicked, which is we can be can be tech heavy, um, and just sit on top of like a giant speaker and watch it all go down. I can't believe you're saying this. I always so my business partner and co-designer Stephen Royal, we always joke about this because there's always someone there's always someone who says, "Well, the real show's backstage." I'm like, "Put your money where your mouth is. Put a glass box backstage and sell tickets to like you know four chairs. You can just like sit back there and watch. Sometimes it might be underwhelming, but sometimes it might be overwhelming. Like just to like watch the running around and the quick changes and all this. But there is something to be said back there. I'd, I'd sink my Visa card back into debt just to be able to do something like that. I think it's super cool. And which, which is, it's really kind of, uh, I think it, for me, it comes from the fact that I'm just not a very visually artistic person. Um, when I write, um, imagining the characters in my head and scenes as like gray shadows. Hmm. And when I come into, it's like, there's been times when I've walked into our apartment and I'll see a painting on the walls. I'll say, David, I'll be like, how did we just get that? And he's like, no, we, I put that up when we moved in five years ago and then we had it in our house for 10 years before that. 
So, and I mean, I just, it takes a lot for me to really be impacted by interesting uh, set. Um, so that's a, just a little bit about the context of me and visual and set designs and stuff. Well, look, people, this is one of the things we kind of undersell to each other is how different people experience the world. And some people, I have friends who are completely, you know, they see like, they see words when like, you know, they're thinking about things. I mean, they see text. I'm like, I always see colors and lighting and stuff. People, we really, as humans, we shouldn't underestimate how different people literally see the world in their minds. It's like, you know, it's one of our, one of the reasons we run into so many problems. We just assume that people are visual like us, or we assume that people are just, um, audio based what's that word oral audio based i think i will yeah. go with audio based yeah but there's all different ways to interpret things i can't find a term to top that so excellent <laughs> great job i'm glad that you said that because it shows that your philosophy is well-rounded it shows that you're paying attention to the psychology of the audience oh 100 percent. well the thing is uh, there again exactly there's going to be a in infinitely different kind of number of kinds of peoples in the, in the in mental states and consciousnesses in the audience. And you got to like speak to them all in one way. And that's what, um, you know, good set. I mean, a good production in, in, in the whole, I mean, costumes, lighting sets, props, direction, you know, music, everything. There's gotta be, I mean, there will be something for everyone in the good show. And especially in a really good show, there's just like you're saying, you want to go back to your show to see if you, you can see something different. And I, in a really good show, there will be something different. That's why pe- the great movies, people go back to it over and over again. Like, oh my gosh, I never noticed that. You know, there's different levels and different levels of interpretation. And, um, you know, that's how oh, yeah. it should be. Yeah, um, I've worked with a stage manager a couple of times on on my shows who said that, you know, a lot of times on smaller shows, people will, they'll do their bow and then they'll bow and and point over to the stage manager. And she's like, I don't want that. If I'm doing my job right, and this is one of the best stage managers I've ever worked with. If I'm doing my job right, don't even know I'm there. So, you know, it's, it's, there, there's a lot of, of, um, paying attention to that as well, just the smoothness and the the fluidity, excuse me, of, of what's going on on stage. Um, Look, I think all any, um, any artist or, you know, practitioner with any, any uh, healthy amount of humility feels that way in their heart at some level, even, and this is, it sounds silly for the set designers to say, because the set is such a giant component of how the evening goes. I mean, how the story show goes, how the story goes, but ultimately I want someone to say, Oh my God, the staging was great. Meaning the director could flawlessly, easily, effortlessly use the set in a way that tells the story. And it looks like it's, you know, and it is staged really well. And, and the actors are able to inhabit it effortlessly, you know, behind the scenes. I'm like, yeah, because we worked tirelessly to make sure there were moments and places in the set for all those things to happen. But I want right. it to look like the director's hand. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Wow. Um, tell us about how you go about creating your designs. What's your process like from, say, the beginning to, well, to the end? And 
Well, I mean, look, that's a, that's a big question. I mean, that's like eighth month long question, you know what I'm saying? But, um, I saw the video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the thing I'm, kind of tying into what we were just talking about. I mean, sets are by far just physically the biggest part of any production. And that's why scheduling wise, they are usually the first to go. People always, I mean, people on the outside are always mystified, like why the set designer gets engaged so far, so early on, because there's just so much planning to do. And there's and like, not to be unartistic about it, but usually there's so much fine. I mean, there's so much money at stake. I mean, yeah. labor money um, that it's usually one of the longest design phases is the set and that's you know the costumes and lighting get integrated as as the as the months go on but you know you're cl- collaborating uh, uh you know you're talking early on but you know physically they, their production processes don't get going till later but sets are so big and, and or physical productions are so big it's like Miranda Priestly talking about the blue sweater in Devil Wars Prada. It's like that sweater represents hundreds of jobs and millions of dollars. And it's funny how you think you're not involved. But like, so as a set designer, I can talk about the design. I mean, my part of it, but of course that is just the, the designer in most cases is essentially the point of origin that the, the ideas come from. And then they get handed down to, you know, countless people and, you know, craftsmen and people who are just as, if not more talented than the designer is. Um, but uh, for my money, I mean, for my part, for my um, contribution, I mean, um, uh, I mean, I'll be person- Andy. I'll be Andy. Yeah. <laughs> You're Miranda. Exactly. Tell us personally. What- personally, I, I mean, most of my um, just so far in life, the way the cookies have crumbled. My work mostly is are mostly musical projects, concerts, musicals. I mean, musically musical based work, and that's just the way that's just the way it's happened so far. I haven't been asked to do a lot of straight plays. I've also never asked anyone to do them. So that makes sense probably. But usually I have, I'm involved in musically based things because, not because, but ultimately because that's where I get a lot of inspiration from. Um, you know, there's an old, because design in a sense, visual design in my, in my book is, it's like uh, visual design is the music made visual. There's like the old stonemasons of Europe in the cathedrals. They always said that architecture is essentially music visualized. And so you look at the Alhambra and all the mosques and the cathedrals of the old world. It's like all the intricacy and all those lines and design, that's all like in their minds, music put to stone, so to speak. And I feel the same way about sets. And so a good, you know, like Titanic, you mentioned, and there's many of others, but a great musical. I think it's very easy for a great written, well-written musical to have a great set because it's already all in there. I can comically argue that like the worst musicals usually have the worst sets because it's like, well, what am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, and so that's why, that's why it's it's a pleasure to revisit the classic shows, musicals over and over again in the same way that it's a pleasure for the right people to revisit Shakespeare over and over in the Greeks because those shows are those plays are so good that it's easy to do them well. I mean, it takes a lot of work. I'm not trying to undersell the work about it, but it's a pleasure to work hard for good material because you usually ends up in a good place. That's why, again, comically, I'll say that like even usually high schools – do a pretty bang up job of Sweeney Todd because even a high schooler can listen to the Sweeney Todd score and be like, okay, it's industrial, it's dirty, it's this. And it's like, it's so apparent what it should be. So it's easy to, in a way, get inspired by the good music. Um, 
more I mean on a practical level that's and so that's just like in my head music is uh, is kind of the fountainhead of all the inspiration on a practical level I can't under can't underscore enough the importance of the director the director's vision and I always think about like the design team like the director's vision the way the in the play as written and the composition it's like it's a curling and it's the puck going down and the design team is like doing the sweeping in front of the thing you know what i'm saying we're just like laying the way so the project can like smoothly go down the track and was so we're just kind of smoothing out things and getting things ready in a way so that it can just exist again a good show is already good on its own so you just kind of got kind of got to get out of the way um but i always think about it as a as a therapist, I love, you know, not literally, but I love the idea of like the director lying down on the sofa and I'm in the chair and you're like, tell me your wish list about the show. Tell me all your dreams and aspirations about how you see the show. And if the author is alive or the comp- composer is alive, them too. It's like, what's, what, what's in your mind for the show? And if you, if you do a thorough job as a designer, really getting everything out of them that they caught, you know, good ideas, the bad ideas, everything they're thinking about the show, that's a good place to start um, because just like in a relationship or a marriage, like not getting to the heart of what your partner wants is probably going to lead to problems down the road. Um, so as a, and that, and as, again, in a kind of a therapist role, I try to get to the root of like what they're really after. Um, and so I can have a full understanding. Um, and this is, okay, I'm going to give away a secret. Because ultimately, as much as much as they may divulge, ultimately in my mind, in my experience, like a director is going to want – there's like three main things, three or so main things that are going to be really important to them. And if you stay true to those three basic requests they've made of you and of the set in this case – you can design anything and all things around that and they'll love it. But if you, but if you do not include the three things they talked about, for instance, well, we need a second level for that mega moment. All right. Second level. I'm going to include a second level for that moment and the rest of it, it's up to you. And if you, and then whatever you put in around that, they'll like be happy to work with. But if you deny the second level, for example, they're going to be kind of fighting you on that for the rest of the time. And no matter how beautiful the set is that you've designed without the second level, they're going to like, eh, it's good, but you kind of, you know, in their minds, like you ignore the one thing they really asked for. And so my advice is figure out what their root, their, their, their few main things that they really want to see. And if you include those from the beginning to end, they're going to love it. And tech will go smoothly because if you deny those requests, early on by the end of it in the last in the, in the 11th hour you're going to be like building a slap dash second level at the last minute because they just can't figure out how to stage it without what the one thing they wanted and no one's going to be happy with this like last minute effort and it's going to stress everybody out wow thanks thanks for the tips and by the way <laughs> blue ribbon for analogies oh good well you that's have- I, that's what i that's the world i live in is you know, you exactly right. Something represented by uh, something else, and and deep and internal in, in that way. But no, I was just like, wow, he, you are like, you are knocking out these great analogies, and they're and they're. That's great because of the fact that not everybody does what you do, and so being able to um, compare it to something that's a little bit more accessible, it really helps us to understand that, and well, so. Cool. I'm well, like I'm thrilled to hear that. Here's another one for you, by the way. It's a good one. The thing is, like I mentioned, the set comes first, generally, just in the order of operations. And so, if the set 
which essentially creates the world that everything else will exist in, both artistically and practically. For instance, if there's only an entrance stage, right? Not only will all the actors be forced. I mean, that's, you've already staged the show in, in a sense, because everything has to come from right, but also on breaks, the crew will be, have to using that door. Like the whole show will be even, the, you know, behind the scenes, they'll have to be like dealing with how this sh- set is shaped. So where I'm going is it's kind of like when you're just filling out the Sunday crossword puzzle. And if you start with the wrong word, you're going to have a hell of a time filling in all the other words. Cause you will have, you will have foundationally put in something that's not really working. And so you're going to work so hard to get all those other words to fit. Whereas if you start off right with the right set, with the right idea for the rest of the team to fill in, it's going to be boom, 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 boom. If not, it's going to be easy to fill in those other crossword words. And if not, the first one will give a clue to what those other things should be. So like if you start with the right set design, the lighting designer is like, oh, I know what I should do. You gave me this, I'll give you this. It's like back and forth, back and forth. And not only do you 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 set everyone off on the right foot, if not inspire them to do the right thing as well. Um, it sounds like this thing that I read in a management book one time um, where it, it's called the 80-20 rule. And it says that you will get 80% of your best results with if you just focus on the top 20% of the strongest decisions that you're going to make. Exactly. So, so that's, that's, that's really smart. Yep, yep, yep. Very, very um, cool. The, and so that's – anyway, so that's all just in the uh, mental and artistic and kind of general planning of the whole thing. Of course, like how a set is constructed and devised, that's like, you know, once the ideas and the sketches and all that storyboards are handed over, that's truly where I can – I want to give credit to the rest of the team. That's where a lot of really talented technicians, draftsmen, they all come into play. Sure. And, I, you know, I can't under, underscore that enough because um, it's a pleasure – back to childhood. I mean, my main superpower is being able to draw with a pencil. Mm-hmm. And so once I've kind of processed everything and drawn it out in on that level, it's like, it's a joy to hand it over and get, you know, the rest of the team kind of fills in all those blanks, like a crossword puzzle, you know. Now you um, also are interested in miniatures, right? Oh my God. Yes. Okay. So does that, is that, did that <laughs> spring from like building miniature sets or is it, what what came first and or do they well together look for that's each all other? you know everything we're talking about including dioramas and I, as a kid i might again i you know how kids are you know you go through phases of being obsessed with different things or at least if you're doing childhood right you do but i went through you know i i love puppets i love making little dioramas like whenever there was like a diorama project for school i was like oh my god i'm gonna you know that was the best Oh, sure. I could really, really go for it. But dioramas, train sets, I was into for, for a while, miniatures. I mean, that, but what I'm trying to say is that's all, it's, you know, little models for sets, of course, puppets. That's all, these are all under the umbrella of little, like a little dream world that you can, like a meditation. It's like, it, not escape in a, not escape in the negative sense, but escape in the, positive sense, like something to think into and create a little um, miniature world ultimately for all the things we, all the, all the areas of interest I just talked about. Um, It's just, uh, that's just in the, in the uh, most basic sense of like enthusiasm. That's, I see a little, you know, miniature maquette or model diorama. And that's just as a person, as a human, I just get my, it gives me goosebumps. Just I just get so excited by it, and whether whatever its practical purposes, it's just you know little miniature worlds are just exciting to me. Did you ever see that that Gulliver's Gate in 
New York City, well, like the different cities and towns, and there's a miniature yeah. airport. I mean, it was just wild. Wow. It's just exciting. I think that's that. I think miniatures inherently bring out the kid in everyone because it's just, for some reason it's just satisfying to see a little tiny version of something as well as a big version. Like this is the Alice in Wonderland part of life. Like you, like that one um, uh, office building that's a giant basket. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of that. I think a Longenberger basket. There's some an office building that is literally a huge woven basket. Um, it's just like how fun. <laughs> Where? Well, I don't, well, it sounds like such a Midwest thing, <laughs> but I'm, I got to look that up afterwards. I should know. Um, but things oversized, things undersized, things. That's just one of the pleasures of life. I think. Wow, cool. Um, I was one of those kids who like couldn't put a model car together. Um, I, I wasn't very art- artistic drawing wise, things like that. But I have to tell you, it is really cool to to observe. Um, to, to see the final product, like, um, took my nephew to Legoland. I don't, have you ever been to Legoland before? Mm-hmm. Cause Legoland, I go to. it like, everything is like, they have giant cities made out of Legos and, um, it is, it is really cool. I mean, that, that did affect me and, and impressed me. So, so when, what are your miniatures mostly? Of. Are they are they cities? Are they well? Look, that's so one of my another one of my phases of childhood interest that have lasted till now. I thought, I mean, in those moments of obsession, I thought I was going to be an architect for a hot second there, and um, I love and like a residential architect. I love uh, historic houses. I was always obsessed with like the like the the Gothic kind of houses and like the stories of Jane Eyre and the secret garden with secret passages and all these things, something about a bit of an Anglophile, I guess. But, um, I always loved, uh, architecture and house design. And so now as an adult that in that moment of, especially, and this is kind of pandemic related with a little more time on my hands and a little, um, I've been able to indulge. I, you know, when the pandemic hit, one of the first things I bought a kit, like a house kit and I kind of put it together and that's been a bit of my hobby time recently, but uh, mostly house-based miniatures. Is it like more meditational for you? Cause my, my husband knits and he says that it's like meditation for him. a hundred percent. And, um, but unlike, you know, like those sand mandalas that they do and then they blow it all away. It's not, it, it's like a, this is a, just like knitting or painting or anything. It's, it's something that's, um, it, it leaves a leftover artifact. It's like, you know, it really is, uh, it's something that you can hold on to afterwards, but absolute meditation. I mean, look, everyone, look, the, the reason dancers like to dance and painters like to paint and knitters like to knit is because you're or runners like to run. It's because you're, when you're in the zone of the thing you love, it's a pleasure. It's like time, you know, time stops and you're just in, you know, essentially you're just, there with your thoughts, making, putting, connecting your hands and your heart and your head all together and making something. Um, that's why this is a bit on the side, but you know, this past year with people not working as much as they used to, it's no wonder there's been a lot of like emotional, like anger under the surface, because one thing I think we've proven is that America not working doesn't work. People like to work. They've got to be busy. They've got to be doing something they like. And when you take that away from them, people, it's like, it gets built up. I mean, like the, you know, the frustration. So that's why I like, whether it's your work, work or a kind of a side hobby, people like to make things. Um, it's this very natural human thing. Okay. I just had a curiosity. This question just popped into my mind. Artistically, um, 
what do you think is the most beautiful city in the world? Interesting. Well, I'm thinking, look, I'm, I can't help but think of where our, at least our modern architecture began in Greece. Um, I'm thinking Rome or, you know, beautiful. Italy. I think that there was, we were on to something then that we've kind of, because look, look at all of our main institutions, look at the architecture, all of our, our, uh, our, uh, political buildings are based off courthouses, the Capitol. It's like, these are, these are Greek inspired designs for some reason, something about that, the, that, uh, combination of lines and design and, details it's like connects us to something so i think you know for my money the older the better <laughs> right <laughs> well i asked because um uh, you did sets for a production of a funny thing happened on the way to the forum it looks really really cool from your from your website uh so i just thought you know i i i know that i was lucky enough to hear joe mantello um speak one time he's a director, if for those of you who don't know, he, direct, he directed Wicked, so we're back to Wicked. But oh. um, people asked what he did in between his projects, and he said, I like to go visit cities. I mm-hmm. like to go visit. I like to go to, to museums and see art. Um, I like to go to – I like to read books. I like to – like. It, it, it feels like it would be something that would just sort of refill the creative juices a bit. So, so that's, that's kind of what I was going for um, in asking you the question. Well, you're making me think about, um, and this kind of ties in a little bit potentially to the extra time people have on their hands during this past year. But, you know, when any industry is in full force, especially in entertainment, which we all know it's not, for most people, it's, you know, you're not, you're not going to get rich immediately in in any kind of entertainment field. And so most of us are working around the clock, essentially. And I'm talking around the clock, around the week, around the month, around the year Mm -hmm. to keep enough projects on the table so you can afford your apartment and your studio to keep going. You know, you're essentially paying, uh, playing to pay because you care about what you do so much. Right. And because everything is so fast, so hot and heavy and the pressure's on and you got to keep going there's this myth that like, if you have interests outside of that industry, it's like, you're not serious about what you're doing. And that's couldn't be farther from the truth. And that's, and I don't know where that, that I don't know where that idea gets going early on in college or something, maybe in like that conservatory setting. It's like, it's like all or nothing. And, and everything else means like, you're not serious about it. You're not really interested, but that is not the truth. And in fact, like Joe traveling around, it's actually, I mean, you need that, you need those outside influences to, you know, stew on and, and, you know, mix together in your consciousness and your subconscious and you need to mix all that together. So when it comes time to do what you do for work, you're like, oh yeah, you know, you've got, you've got life experience, you've got visual experience. Um, and you know, it all, it all, it makes a difference. Yeah. I, I always tell people as, as a writer, um, I think that I have to be a good audience member to be a better writer and, and go see things. I mean, I, I, I don't know where that kind of philosophy comes from that where people say you're not really serious and um, you're, you're actually just experiencing, you know, your first love in the world. 
uh, as far as, you know, a career and artistically. So um, do, do you want to know what my, my favorite, most beautiful what? city is? Oh, yeah, tell me. I do, I do love Rome. I've been there, and, and oh, okay. it's, it's gorgeous in London. I love Paris, but I love – uh, a couple of years ago, we went to Barcelona, Spain, mm. with all of the gaudy uh, yeah. buildings, and, and there's a uh, there's a, uh, a cathedral there. I think it's called the Posada de Familia or something like that. We went in, and it's like all these various types of of uh, architecture and construction, modern, because it's been they're continuing to build it. Yes. And that was one of the coolest, coolest cities I've ever seen. No, I, I know that cathedral. And yeah, it's infamously still under construction. Yeah. It's just a great metaphor for life because it's like never really, nothing's ever really done. You just kind of keep going. Even like on your on your own house, by the time you get all your to-dos done, it's like, well, it's time to do the first thing again because right. it's been a year and now i got to repaint and all that stuff. Um, no, I love that. It's like, I always think that's like a, it looks like a sand, you know, like when kids do like a sand drip castles on the beach and just kind of yeah. builds up in the wetness. I always think that just, it's so beautiful. Cause it's like, it looks like it's made of seashells and sand and it's like very organic. Yeah. And, and that kind of like, um, uh, sort of webs out into the city. Uh, it's, it's the architect, uh, Gadi, is that how you pronounce his name? Gadi. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, I mean, it was just. I, I love that. And, and of course I love the tapas, but I love to eat. Ah. That works. <laughs> um, now I, I do want to talk about COVID-19, but first I have a question for yes. you. Um, tell us about your most cha- one of your most challenging projects that was equally rewarding at the same time. Well, um, there's two different, I mean, I'm thinking of two different aspects of this, of this question. I mean, I worked on um, Dream Girls and then the kind of conceptual design for Excalibur, both in Seoul, Korea. And that was my first time working in, with a language barrier. And of course, even that word always sets, already sets you up for failure because ultimately there was no language barrier and you're sitting watching the show. You're like, oh my gosh, this is like, you know, musical theater is kind of languageless in a way. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's beyond words in a good way, but that was definitely just a challenge. I mean, the final result was very uh, rewarding, but it was definitely, uh, especially as like a, again, as a Midwesterner <laughs> and, a, and an American, it's just very intimidating to, cause we don't, I didn't learn Korean growing up. And so that was like, you know, maybe Spanish I could have, uh, had a little a clue in, but like, you know, Korean was quite, it was, was a stretch. And so I always felt, um, so that was just difficult because essentially meetings with translators, everything has, I mean, meetings are exactly twice as long because everything has to be said twice. You say something, they translate it back and forth, blah, blah, blah. So it's just, it was challenging time wise and, but ultimately very rewarding. Um, but uh, like a, like, as it should have been a very humbling experience about like, wow, you know, you just step out one foot outside of, you know, the United States and you're like, okay, there's more to the world, obviously. Right. Um, the other project was definitely coming back to your first topic of Titanic, both practically and even more so in a way, just personally, artistically, it's like, okay, how are we going to tell this uh, grand turn of the century story outside essentially not to, not that you overassume, but I knew it was going to, you know, it was going to be in large part kind of like a scaffolding built structure and scaffolding is not exactly like Edwardian. And so how to make essentially what would be, what I knew was going to be built from, ultimately built from rented uh, components, 
window washing bridges and scaffolding and barrels and things. It's like, how do we give it that, you know, you know, thinking of like Kate Winslet look, look, turning the brim of her hat up, looking at the ship. I mean, there is like this old world elegance to it, but I knew, so, so just kind of artistically kind of finding the right tone with the, how period it was and ultimately how contemporary it was, because it's being told here and now with contemporary materials, um, how to bridge all that together, so to speak. Um, and then on the practical level, like I had never, how, who do we hire to map the topography of the lake bottom? So we know where to put the cement footings. So the scaffolding can, you know, like all these, these are all new issues for me, frankly. <laughs> um, and it makes you any, and as many people will know, anything outside in a site specific sense, it really gives you an appreciation of how much is spoken for, for an indoor theater. Cause I always kind of joke in my head about, you know, we walk into a theater building and we're like, oh, it's a blank canvas. Well, it's not a blank canvas at all. Everything's set up for you. The set goes there. The audience goes there. There's actually very little for you to figure out ultimately, although, you know, the challenge of creating a show is infinite. But really, a lot of things are already determined for you. Can't be over right. there. Can't be over there. Drops go here. You know, like it's there's a lot that is already determined um, outside in nature it's like it, it it not the thing is it is neither a blank canvas because there you're dealing with nature herself the ultimate backdrop the sun the moon stars trees water it's like it's not neutral either and so it's just, it's just a different kind of a canvas to be painting on um but it certainly it, it makes you appreciate how much more there is to figure out where do the toilets go? Where do the, where's the power coming from? Like mm-hmm. how cold will it be? When does the sun go down? Like a whole other kind of host of things. Oh, like for Titanic randomly, there were like, um, there were frogs like audible, like, cause we're outside. I mean, there, you could hear them at night, like, ar, 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 ar. and it was kind of like, okay, that's very distracting. Cause we're supposed to be on the ocean. Like I didn't, I hadn't thought about the frogs. You know what I'm saying? It was a new challenge. Wow. That's so much to think of. But I did have that thought when I was watching the, the video. I think it was called, it's uh, Sinking the Titanic, and it's the one that's on your website. And you should watch this, uh, audience, because it just explains the whole thing. And I remember thinking there were two, like, ducks or swans swimming around, and I thought, how how does that? But, you know, you you go in, and if it's as compelling as the way it looked, you suspend your disbelief. I was just going to say one, again, in the transition from a lot of indoor theater experience, which is most of it, to doing stuff outside, I, it taught me to, it taught me what is really important. And of course, you know, especially indoor theater in many ways, we are so used to it being so refined. The sound is perfect, almost like a soundtrack. The mm-hmm. set is perfect. It's clean. It's this, the lighting, everything's tucked, all the cables in there, the usually the beautiful architecture of the theater of the audience space itself, the house is very beautiful and it's clean and it's this and there's light, you know, it's just all so clean and refined outside. There's like cables going over here. There's cables going over there and I'm freaking out like, Oh my gosh, that's, that's going to distract people. Look, once the sun goes down, it's pitch black. And so anything that there's not literally lighting focus featuring on something, you don't see it. And so a lot of it, just like in indoor theater, like when the work lights are on, you can't judge the set or the show when the work lights are on because that's not how it's going to look. At what the only thing that really matters is show condition lighting, and so when you're working outside, so you got to wait 
mostly for the sun to go down and then judge it. But once the sun goes down, I mean, you know, nighttime is black, pitch right. black outside, you know, unless there's a little moonlight. Um, so once it's nighttime, you don't see any of that stuff. So there's speakers there, there's cables over there, but that's once the audience is like, you know, and talking about the runner's high or, you know, that moment of disbelief, once you're like in it and you're watching it, it's like all the stuff I was taking notes on. It's like, okay, that's not important. No one's looking over there and we can focus on what is important. Wow. Very cool. Um, if you were designing sets, what's the one thing artistically that you would, what's the one job you'd like to, you would be doing, or you'd like to be doing? Well, this is not artistic, but I, I would probably be my grand. my mom's dad was taught philosophy for many, many years at the uh, university of Dayton. He was also the national spelling bee announcer for 30 years in Washington, no D.C. This is so, it's so random, but wow. Richard, Richard Baker. And I would say I spoke of set design in a way as like symbology and philosophy and kind of spiritual studies. I, w- I think I would be uh, like in a philosophical or spiritual area of life I, in, in a academic sense. I don't know. Oh, that's, that's interesting. I could, you know, I could see that just with, having a, you know, a 45 minute conversation with you. I can see that that's, that you really, you, you bring a lot of that to your work. The and thing is, I'm, I feel so lucky. I mean, set design involves so many different art. I mean, painting and I mean, depending on what the show is, what the design is, what you're involved with painting and sculpture and this and that. It's like, I feel like I'm, it is it, in a way it's so all encompassing that I feel like I'm, I get all of that taken care of. And so it's like if I, I wouldn't say I want to be a painter because I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm already a painter in a way. And so it's just not – that doesn't feel that different, I guess. Hmm. Okay. Well, as, a, uh, as uh, you – as you know, being a guest on this show and on this particular series, it's focused um, on the effect of COVID-19 on artists, on, on theater companies. Um, so let's talk about that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, please. Uh, Tell us about that first day you realized COVID-19 would change our theater world. Every, I asked this to everyone. Everyone knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's a good question. Remember I it. Thank you. No, um, March 10th. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I was in Florida and uh, my um, co-designer and business partner, Stephen Royal, who, who is more and more, we can talk about this, doing a lot of the, he has, in his own right now, becoming a video and projection designer as that's where things, uh, our work is taking us. Cool. But we were both in Florida, in Miami, opening um, or about to open or going into previews, A Wonderful World, which is a brand new musical about Louis Armstrong and his four mm-hmm. beautiful wives throughout his life. Um, and that was in Miami. And that was like one day away from a preview or maybe had had one preview and and of course, like moments, you know, like you always mo- remember like the moments before a disaster. I mean, like just moments before all this came crashing down, we were fighting with the fire department about the egress and this and all the stuff like backstage and, you know, all this stuff that happens during a tech rehearsal. Like you think, you know, you think you have problems. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then March 10th came around and I had gone to, and I had left the team there to open a wonderful world. And I was on my way up to Jupiter, Florida to do, to open, start taking um, how to succeed in business at the Maltz Jupiter theater in Jupiter, Florida. And essentially like arrived at that theater to the news that like 
no, no, like we were just about to start tech. And I was like, and they said like, we will not be able to have an audience next week because of this COVID-19. And it's like, what is COVID-19? You know, we are all, it had been like kind of something overseas and kind of making its way over here. And no one was really sure. And I remember in that moment that Andrew Cato, great artistic director of Malt Jupiter, sat us all down and said, okay. And in that way that like, this is when leaders really like step out, I mean, step up. Mm -hmm. He said, in in the most honest way, he's like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what, I'm not quite sure what we're going to do. We're not going to have an audience. We will be bringing in video cameras and we're going to capture this thing. And like, so within like 48 hours, we went from about to rehearse or tech a show for an audience to bringing cameras, making sure the angles were right. And essentially in a quick turnaround, capturing this thing and, you know, putting it out to the subscribers because as you know, I mean, many theaters were in that moment on the hook. People had bought tickets. They're expecting something, you know, maybe this thing was going to come and go in two weeks or something, but they feel like they had to put out something because the tickets had been bought. Were they going to, people are going to ask for refunds if you didn't do anything, Um, you know, and still to this day, people are not quite sure, you know, are still figuring out what the best way to handle all of this in a way. Um, Anyway, so within one week, two shows had been – oh, and then I got word from Miami that A Wonderful World, no audiences. I mean, they had to stop previews. And I think to this day, that big, gorgeous set um, is like frozen on stage, like Miss Havishman's wedding. It's just (laughs) waiting to – and we can talk about this, but it's one of the things that giving people like me hope is that there are sets waiting to go. I mean, there are productions waiting to go. Um, But it was – yeah. Early March, all came crashing down, and that was that. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. How did it affect you personally? Well, I, I mean, mean, like inside your feelings, your emotions. Well, look, as anyone in entertainment and theater knows, it's like the the emotional roller coaster that is guaranteed by opening a show is quite something already. You know, all this momentum building and excitement building, and to have the bottom fall out like that, it's like. Uh, it's like, you know, you hit a, it's like hitting a wall because you're, you know, preparing yourself to have these emotions in one way and get excited and you're preparing, you know, and it's just, it's just, it was such a, it, well, shock in a lot of ways, of course, because you're just trying to figure out what was going to happen. And it was kind of scary too. I remember feeling like that, you know, that, that uh, slow moving terrorist attack kind of panic, like what is what is going on? Like, it's like a movie, all these things that you say when things are like kind of out of your hands suddenly, which we don't feel like that. You know, it's not often in life. We feel like that. Usually things are generally in control when we know where things are going. So to have that kind of like bizarre feeling of something is, something is happening in the wind that is not really up to us anymore. It's, it's strange. And the line just kept moving and moving. And it kept moving. Exactly. moving. Well, I will say, I've talked about a lot of this with Stephen, you know, over the past couple of months, definitely the, what feels like the most um, emotionally draining part is the stops and starts. And of course, let's say we were working on 
at various points of design, probably like 10 or 12 projects in March. Some of them, like I said, some of them were about to open. Some of them are midway design. Some of them are just contracts waiting to go. Some of them are like in rough design format. Um, but since then, you know, all of those shows on their own bizarre little timelines have been like, okay, we're pushing a month. No, we're pushing two months. Okay, we're on. No, we're off. We're going to do a film. No, we're going to, it's like, oh my gosh, like the, the kind of like whiplash of kind of going back and forth about all this. Again, like I said, because the emotions you got to kind of uh, build up to be able to design something, to do it, to produce it. It's like, you know, it's it's not nothing. So uh, definitely the, the kind of back and forth has been a little draining. Yeah, I'm sure. And I'd rather, sometimes I'd rather, it's like, don't tell me anything until you have it. Gar- and the thing is, that's, there is no guarantee nowadays. So it's like, don't tell me anything until you know the show is back on. Because if I have one more of these, like, okay, it's next month and next month and next mm-hmm. month. It's like, <gasps> it really is. Yeah, I mean, it adds a, a, another layer to the anxiety that's already there that includes, like, when am I going to get my vaccine? Yes. You know, should I go get, I mean, there, there's just so much that already and then uh, I think theater is is so precarious and under these circumstances as well. And so it's it's tough, and you know it sucks because we're talking about people's livings here, yeah. and it's 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 crazy. Now, I um, have your your guys's three page list of projects that's mm-hmm. on your website. Oh, yeah. You've done <laughs> so much, and it looks like you had seven shows cancel. That's what I have here based on your key. Um, uh, Beauty and the Beast, uh, How to Succeed, Next yep. to Normal, Our Brother's Son, Sweet Charity, The Moon and the... That's so much going on, and uh, that's that sucks. Well, it, it it does, and of course, at the moment, you know, in the moment, and this is like almost comical now, but nothing is really comical. Um, like, let's, oh, you know, two weeks to stop the spread. Like, okay, two weeks, and we'll be back on. And it's like that's couldn't be farther from the truth, right? Um. The good thing is, I mean, and, uh, you know, ultimately I got to be, I do believe in a kind of having to maintain a certain amount of positive uh, thinking in life because otherwise you'll just, you won't want to get out of bed. But so there are, they're hard to see nowadays, but there are silver linings hidden into everything that's going on. Little tiny ones, but they're there. Um, I but agree. The, but so of those, the projects you mentioned, for example, I would say like a third of them immediately closed with no hope of going on. Let's say a third of them pivoted somehow, like how to succeed was going to be a show, but then they filmed it, Broadway HD kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a third of them are like holding out for, those are the ones that have been like stopping and starting because they think it's going to be a month, two months, three months, six months. Right. Um so, but it's the, it's the, it's the group of things that have pivoted somehow that I am the most encouraged by and that we're all kind of like pinning our bets on at this point, because for example, the, I did a, um, that just recently closed in Lyric or in Oklahoma city, Lyric theater of Oklahoma pivoted quickly and did an outdoor immersive walkthrough socially distanced version of a Christmas carol, because again, these you know, a lot of the theaters feel the pressure to have to do something if it's safe and, a, a, you know, a, and they're able to. And so after, you know, 10, I don't know, many years of doing a, you know, the same kind of Christmas carol indoors for years and years and years, because as we know, that's the kind of a big holiday, emotional, financial staple of many theaters is doing sure. a holiday show. Yeah. <clears throat> and so they quickly pivoted and said, okay, 
and let's do this outside. And there's like, there's a, like many cities, there's kind of a, an outdoor historic little mini village, like a, a living museum kind of thing in Oklahoma city. In this case, it's called Harn, the Harn homestead. It's like a collection of old buildings from around Oklahoma. And we, and we kind of plotted through the way and said, okay, this will be the Cratchit's house. This will be Scrooge's house. And essentially with quick thinking led by Michael Barron, by the way, a great guy, a great artistic director, um, he, they were able to get it together and, you know, quickly change this show to be outside and it happened and it was beautiful. It's actually mentioned in the New York times and a couple other places as an example of how to like, you know, this wasn't the plan, but this is what we're doing. Um, which leads me to think about, I mean, something I've been thinking about or noticing is that, you know, in all of this, whether it's company theater companies or, you know, corporation companies, it's like how big you are ultimately kind of determines how quickly you can pivot or if you can pivot at all. And one of the things I'm thinking about recently is that it's like, strangely, it's like the small and medium sized theater companies that are able to have one meeting with the board and say, Hey, we want to do this, not that. Okay, fine, do it. Whereas the bigger the institution is, sometimes it's harder to change course. And I am just trying, I'm, you know, as someone who works at all these kinds of places, I'm kind of like, you know, always kind of looking at where things are heading or if the people are able to like make changes like that. But I, you know, in the beginning in March, everyone thought, well, we'll all come back when Broadway comes back. Well, as it turns out, it's actually Broadway might be the last thing to come back because it's so big. There's so many things involved. There's so many people involved. And so maybe already there's like across the country, there are lots of organizations and companies like making something happen ahead of Broadway. And actually it's like the reverse of what we thought. Right. I I agree. Uh, I think it's theater is generally a calculated risk or it should be calculated, but it is always a risk. And I think people I've, I've often told other people that here in New York city, we're probably going to see off, off and off Broadway revving up a little sooner than we see Broadway. That's, that's a guess. That's not, that's just me guessing, but um, I, I agree with you on that. I do. I think that's that's just smart. <laughs> well, the, the unrelated, but just parallel. It's like the same kind of unexpected results. You know, when this first all started happening, the first joke to go around was like, "Oh my God, extroverts are going to like go crazy with this with um, quarantining, and introverts are going to love it." And as it turns out, as the research shows, it's actually quite the opposite. Another kind of opposite. It, result that you think, whereas extroverts, look, they're outgoing, they're extroverted. So they're going to find a way to make it work no matter what. They're going to call friends, get on Zooms, do this, do that. And extroverts are like potentially flourishing during all this because they're going to flourish anyway. And it's actually introverted people who are usually forced to interact with other people who are having a much harder time because now now they're like doubled down on their introversion. And it's just kind of an unexpected turn of events, I think. Um, I had uh, posed a question to you on uh, my outline. Um, what has surprised you the most about your fellow artists' reaction to the COVID nineteen crisis? Is that is that my answer? That is. You're so efficient. That's that's just. I mean, that really has been a surprise to me because even I was kind of like going into this thinking, like, oh my gosh, how am I, how am I going to react? And I'm more I'm more of a you know social person, so I was worried that this is going to be hell, but it's actually been, uh, you know, heaven and hell a little bit, a little mix of everything. But you, you know, if you're, if you're dedicated to something, you'll, you're going to make it work. You're going to see friends one way or the other. Um, mm. 
I mean, like, you know, through Zoom and stuff. But sure. Um, well, you had mentioned earlier silver linings, um, and a lot of people are seeing silver linings within their their communities, their particular artistic communities. Uh, maybe they're thinking of a new way to to um, get their information out there, get their projects out there. I've seen a lot of people get super, super creative just by doing interviews for this series. Totally. Um, well, I mean, at least in the, in the, to answer for set designers, just briefly, I mean, generally it's, I, I have hope because especially, I mean, for a lot of the projects I was working on, so much has already been invested in these physical productions that although it seems like there's no hope right now, ultimately there potentially will be a, for me at least, of the projects I have like still on my little chart on the wall, essentially at some point there will be a backlog of work because all these things, I mean, they're not going to like, I don't think yet they're just going to toss these physical productions out the window. Too much has been invested already. So at some point the things that as a designer, I mean, I was working on will, will, come back slowly one by one at some point. So I, there is hope, if not a lot of hope, because once things get going again, it'll be like, you know, back to, or it'll rev up slowly. I'm sure. I don't know, but there'll be, you know, we'll, we'll be back to um, producing a lot because after a year of no income, I think companies who have made it that far will be, they're going to be, they're going to, they're going to want to put on something so they can, you know, get people back in the seats or produce it somehow and get money coming in. Um, so that's just like on the production end of things. On the personal side of things, I totally agree with you. I've seen all kinds of friends flourish in unexpected ways. And this kind of goes to back what we were talking about with like, if you have interests outside of what you do, it's like, you don't care. It's like, well, now with a little more time, all of us, I think have in one way or other have had to efface that person we'd always promised we would be if we had more time. So, you know, after you know, in the last 10 years, it's like, oh, if I only had a little time, I'd read this. If I had a little, little time, I'd do that. Well, here it is. Who are you? You know, when you've got extra time, who are you really? And so we've all had to like kind of look in the mirror and be like, well, what else do I do? Um, given the fact you have a roof over your head and food to eat. And I understand, you know, one of the underlying aspects of all this is like, will I get vaccinated? Are we healthy? Like, do I have, you know, any money? I mean, I know there are the kind of foundational economic, uh, aspects of this really determine like how, you know, your, your reaction to all this, but assuming you're healthy and you've got food and a roof to, you know, someplace to stay, like, what are you doing with all this bizarre time that we were never expecting? And I agree. I've seen people like actors start painting and knitting and this and that, and that's all kind of like in the hobby world or like realizing that they want to do something completely different, like in going to real estate or, you know, massage therapy or something, you know, like people are really, um, again, with a little time on their hands, they are forced to think like what really does make you happy outside of working. Um, I, I've caught up with a lot myself. I, I have to say that um, I've had, I know this, I know this is an interview. Interview isn't about me, but I just enjoy talking no, to you so much. And, and I love your philosophy. It's great. So feel free to, feel free to analyze me if you like, it's fine. I'm not that deep, but, um, but in my experience, I've caught up on like a lot of script work that I wanted to get done and, and uh, festival and contest submissions and things like that. And, and making videos for, for music uh, from musicals that I'm a part of. Um, but for me, that's sort of always how I write as writers, writers, we don't, unless we're writing on assignment, 
most of it's just done on our own right. schedule. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've caught up with a lot. Um, but there are people out there um, who have kind of just, they've just kind of shut down or they've shut down for a period of time. My philosophy is that's okay. Absolutely. Well, yeah. No, my I definitely with my family and friends, my instinct since this began, I mean, since I knew how serious this was going to be, because I think for the first two weeks, everyone just watched TV because I thought everyone just thought that, well, there's nothing to do except for watch TV for two weeks to ride this thing out. Then it's months and months, and, you know, it's almost a year. And so once I realized that this was going to be a little longer than two weeks, um, I realized that, uh, my, I mean, what I've been thinking is like, you know, what, I'm going to go easy on myself. I'm going to go easy on the pe- on the people around me because, and I expect the same back because no one knows what's going on, no one knows what to expect, and so let's just go easy on each other um, for the time being. Yeah, not not easy because I'm I I can be a very ambitious person, and um, uh, I feel like you're an ambitious person. Oh yeah. I mean, you have a, a three page list of projects, so I'm going to say that that's a that's a good tip for me. Um, but uh, I've, I've told this story many, many, almost every episode of this particular podcast. But um, when we first, when COVID first hit and everybody's at home and it was, you know, it was awful and it still is awful, but less awful. Um, I had put out on Facebook that I'd be happy to do interviews with people if they wanted to talk about what their plans were to, you know, for, for reemergence, if you will. And, it was crickets. Now, usually when I do that, I get somebody who, whenever I put out a, a, I say, when you want to do a podcast and then I'll get somebody, you know, because they want to talk about their shows or their, and, or, or their companies or what have you. And I was telling David, I was like, what's, I don't get it. And he was like, everybody's head is just spinning right now. Yes. You know, I mean, people, people are trying to figure out what they're doing tomorrow. Yes. You know, to survive and 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 make their money last because give them some time so yes. i had to sort of shift my hmm. my paradigm when it came to that and and realize you know I, I had to open my mind a lot about my expectations for people so that's me on the couch yeah, offered yeah. no up to it's you. definitely <laughs> been a more again like i like i said i mentioned before we're so used in our civilized society or allegedly that we're so used to things how I mean, we're so used to how things are and you know you can expect this you can expect electricity to be on you go to work da, da, da. it's like everything's just kind most there's little surprises here and there but mostly we are so accustomed to how things normally operate and so i think everyone's it is definitely a, a huge psych, worldwide maybe psychological experiment of like what's happening this week what's happening next month <laughs> um i heard someone you know like the smartest thing I ever did is throw out my 2020 planner at the time. Cause it's like, well, like what's the point of having a calendar? I, it, it was just, everything was shifting day by day as far, as far as work goes, you know, shows on and off again, all that stuff. So definitely one of the lessons of all this is flexibility, both professionally and personally. Um, you just gotta be flexible and, um, and like improvisational. I've been thinking this whole time, like, okay. Um, especially it's like, what is, how are show how the projects that have been going on along the way I mean, along this year the ones that have sneaked by? It's like it's definitely been improvisational. Some theater, you know, some people have been like, "Okay, we want the design, but in this case, we're not going to travel you. Okay, we will travel you, but we're not going to do this." It's like, okay, 
the normal hierarchy of what to expect with the job and everything out the window. And it's like, okay, um, it's just because everyone's on a personal level and has changing, uh, changing, uh, situations day by day. And then on a professional level, everyone's, you know, trying to balance what little, what work there is in that, through that same uncertainty. And so there's just, it's like a comp, it's been a constantly rearranging matrix of issues and things. And you, again, you go easy on yourself, go easy, easy on other people. Cause it's just, no one is quite sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to let you go pretty soon in a second, uh, mm-hmm. because, uh, I'm, I'm could talk to you for the next two hours because you're, <laughs> you were very, very interesting to talk to, not just about sets, but lots of other things. Uh, but before I do, can you give our audience your social media information so they can keep up with your stunning career oh, as these, well, as well as see examples of your incredible work. And I usually say, if you have one place that they can go where they can click everywhere else or two places, that's usually best. Totally. Well, look, officially work-wise, I need to send you to adamcokeassociates.com. That's the website that's got all kinds of information on it. Um, and then Instagram is the other place where I've, <laughs> in the last year, I've been spending a lot of time. And that's Adam Koch, K-O-C-H, just for the record, like the Koch brothers, but not related, please. Um, but Instagram <laughs> is um, Insta Adam Koch, all one word. Um, and I'm on Facebook too, but I haven't been there for a while. Oh, okay. Well, you're, you're a visual art. A lot of visual artists, they, they spend most of their time on Instagram. Oh, it's perfect for visual people. Right. Exactly. So ideal. (laughs) Well, Adam, thank you so much for being on this series. I, this was a pleasure. Oh, well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. Um, you're, you've been sensational and not just talking about, um, what we're dealing with artistically, but what people are dealing with uh, philosophically. And um, I think that's super cool. And I wish you many, many broken legs in your career. Well, thank you so much. I know I hope to be back someday. Oh, you're always an open invitation. Okay, good. Open I'm telling you these, um, this year, this is like going out to dinner or something. I really appreciate <laughs> the time to talk to someone, to a human. Yeah, it it is nice. <laughs> um, and uh, you're just you're just marvelous. And uh, again, everybody that's listening, please go to um, Adam's website. You will see some of the most dazzling uh, sets you, you and set pieces you've ever seen. It's just it's just it's it's really, really stunning. It is. Um, so, Adam, just keep doing what you're doing. And um, when all of this lifts. We are going to go back and see all of your wonderful shows. And, yes. And, uh, um, and I just, I, I, I very, very much look forward to it. So well, thank you so much. Take care, everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. Thanks, Adam. Bye-bye. Well, folks, the 11 o'clock number has been sung and the bows have been taken. So it's time to lower the curtain. Once again, a big thanks to amazingly talented set designer, Adam Koch. He was awesome. You can find more episodes of Your Program Is Your Ticket on the Broadway Podcast Network, who has honored me with a place on their incredible theater podcast platform. Broadway Podcast Network is all about creating an engaging, immersive, user-friendly experience where theater stories of all kinds can be easily found, shared, and enjoyed. Please visit them on my landing page at bpn.fm slash ypiyt. That's bpn.fm slash ypiyt. 
Your Program Is Your Ticket is also on Facebook at facebook.com, Your Program Is Your Ticket. I'm on Twitter at, at Program Ticket. Also on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Pocket Casts, Deezer, TuneIn, Listen Notes, and the UK-based theater platform Thespy. FYI, I appreciate all good ratings, reviews, and subscriptions. A quick thanks to the amazing North Coast NYC, the hip-hop improv theater ensemble that does my intro and outro music. You might be hearing it right now. Folks, take a little time to visit theater websites, see what they have to offer as we transition through and out of this pandemic. Watch their content, give them all great ratings and reviews, and, most importantly, donate, donate, donate. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and until our next show, so long, theater people, and Kurt. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.